Well, you guys ready to study the Word together? You can keep your Bibles where they are. That will be our text, Daniel chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. Um, Last Sunday, we looked at how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are Daniel's buddies, how they denied King Nebuchadnezzar's final warning, you know, to bow and to worship the golden image on the plain of Dura. Uh, They rejected his final warning and which led to them being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace, and yet they were delivered by God. Uh, Their lives were preserved, and uh, it was just a a miracle, a supernatural event. At this point in the narrative, in the storyline, in this historical event, um, the king has commanded that these men exit the fiery furnace, and come to him for examination. And he and his top officials uh, looked the men up and down, thoroughly examined them, and were utterly astonished uh, at the fact that they were in the same condition as before. They were thrown in. Uh, There wasn't anything wrong with them. There were no injuries. Uh, Their hair was still in place, and you'd think that'd be the first thing to go. Uh, Their clothing did not smell like fire or like they'd been at a campsite. Uh, So they were completely blown away by not just the supernatural event or miracle itself, but by the extensiveness of it and the comprehensiveness of God's deliverance in that there was literally nothing changed on these men as they came out of this fiery furnace, which was probably between three and 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit, easily hot enough to, to melt or or something of that nature, or to harden bricks. And so that's kind of where we left off. And so this morning we're going to wrap up chapter 3, and we're going to examine uh, maybe the king's testimony, something of that nature, what he said after uh, he brought them out and examined them. And I think it's befitting that we would pray once more before we enter into this time of, of diligent study. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your supremacy this morning. You alone are blessed God. You alone, as we sang earlier, can rescue. And you alone deserve all praise and glory. Father, help us to realize these truths about you this morning. Help us to value you above all others and above all things. Father, grow our faith and confirm, or conform, actually, us more to the image of Jesus Christ. That's actually the purpose of our salvation, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be sanctified to the point of being like Jesus, not in divinity, but in humanity and in every other way. To be like Jesus is the goal and the final point of our salvation. It's not just heaven golden streets and eternal bliss. It's to be like Christ. It would be like the sons and daughters of God becoming like the only begotten Son. And so we pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us today through your word. Make us a little bit more like Jesus. Chip away a little bit more of Phil and make me like Christ. That's what we long for. Jesus came to glorify you in all that he said and did, and and that is my heart cry, seemingly impossible while in this flesh, but it is 
the cry of my heart. It is the cry of our heart. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in power to work your word in us and to make us like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, let's pick it up at verse 28. Verse 28 is where we'll begin. That's where we left off last week. Please look at it with me. It's kind of a long verse. There's a lot in it, so we'll spend a little time breaking it down. I'll read it again. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That's how it reads in the ESV. The king was essentially blown away by the miracle he had just witnessed. I mean, he was literally blown away by this thing. And, and just, the, like I said, the extensiveness, the comprehensiveness of God's deliverance in that they were not harmed at all and their clothing wasn't even infected. So he was literally blown away by what he had just witnessed. And he kind of broke out in praise, is what he did. And he declared, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so that's kind of a praise statement, if you will. That was his way of praising the God of these three men who were just delivered. But I want you to notice something about his praise. It's really important that we pick up on this. It wasn't personal. It wasn't coming from a heart of praise to his own God. The God of whom he spoke was still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The God of whom he spoke was, he spoke about their God. Blessed be the God of those men whom you delivered. He wasn't saying, uh, blessed be my God and my Lord, blessed be their God. And this little piece of scripture, this little praise statement reveals, it shows that the king was not affected at the deeper level by God's display of power and supremacy. He was impressed by what he saw, no doubt, but he wasn't humbled by what he saw. He wasn't humbled to the point of maybe repentance and faith. If the king had been convicted by what he witnessed, this awesome display of power, if he had been converted in a sense, he would have declared, blessed be my Lord and my God. But that's not what we see in the text. He praised their God. And what was true in Nebuchadnezzar's life is repeated time and time again in our contemporary world. The modern version occurs when Someone impressed by the faith of a Christian under trial comments, what wonderful faith you have, without having any desire or intention to seek and find, or better, be found by God in his saving grace. Such people are impressed, but the impressions are only skin deep. They mask a heart that remains hardened People today respond in exactly the same manner to the message of the cross and the resurrection of Christ and other demonstrations of God's mighty power, don't they? 
When you tell them about you know, what the Lord has done, they say, well, I'm glad that you found something that works for you. I'm happy for you. But don't ask me to submit to your God. What works for you doesn't necessarily work for me. And I think that's what was happening with Nebuchadnezzar here. He's praising their God. He thinks their God is impressive and all of that. But this same God who worked this supernatural event, which is unlike anything he had ever seen with his pantheon of astral deities, he's, it's just a shallow praise. It's like, well, your God is pretty special, isn't he? That's, in effect, what he's saying. Blessed be your God. Your God's to be blessed. He should be saying, blessed be my Lord and my God. So he doesn't yet believe in their God as his God. That's where he's at. Boyce wrote, Nebuchadnezzar was not converted. He was going to have to sink much lower before he was ready to acknowledge that there is but one God and to worship him. Now, I agree with Boyce. I think that the text shows that Nebuchadnezzar was not there yet. Uh, The good news is, is that I do believe that Nebuchadnezzar was in a process, a process of grace, where God was revealing himself to this person. God was revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think sometimes, although the moment of salvation is instantaneous, I think sometimes God brings people through a process as he's revealing himself to them and softening them with this grace. And then there's a trigger moment where everything is changed in an instant. So this text reveals that Nebuchadnezzar's not there yet, but it reveals that God is showing his grace to this man. The fact is, he was not yet ready to cast down all his idols and to make the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego his own God. Next line says, Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants? This shows that the king believed that the fourth man in the fiery furnace was an angel. Or as he put it back in verse 25, a son of the gods, which is a title for angels. Now, we covered the fourth man last week. I don't know if we covered him extensively, but we did talk about him to some degree. And we discovered that this fourth man that actually came and delivered these three men and who walked in the fiery furnace with them and obviously, obviously preserved their lives and clothing and hair and everything else, uh, we uh, did discover that he either was an angel or maybe the pre-incarnate Christ, which in the Old Testament categories would be called the angel of the Lord. So we don't know for sure if this was an angel or the angel of the Lord or Christ, and the text does not reveal, but... I believe the fourth man was Christ and that this was what we call a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate visit from Christ. But as I said, we don't know for sure if this was Christ or an angel or the angel of the Lord. What we do know for sure is that the fourth man came to deliver, as Nebuchadnezzar points out, to deliver God's servants from these deadly flames and heat. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Next line, who trusted in him, Nebuchadnezzar says. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the firm faith, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He acknowledged the firm faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
You remember Isaiah 43, 2 from last week? It says, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. That was a prophecy that Isaiah gave shortly before these men were carted off and taken into Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had faith. They believed in the God of this particular promise. They had a firm faith in the promises of this very God whom we're looking at. They believed and trusted that God would fulfill that particular passage at that particular moment. Have you ever displayed this kind of faith where you realize there's a promise in Scripture and that you believe like, man, that promise is for right now as this is playing out. That's what they were doing. They, they knew about this promise that Isaiah gave to deliver you know, someone from the Israelite band or group through fire. And they were, hey, there's a promise in Scripture that says this. So they were hanging on that promise and building upon that promise right in that moment and, and eagerly stepped out and fell into the flame and were delivered. It's just amazing. What a display of faith they had. They literally took God's promise and said, this is for us right now. And if it's not, we're okay with that too. We're not going to bow to any golden statues. Amazing faith. Amazing faith. Kind of blows my mind. I always ask myself, do I have this kind of faith? I guess I wouldn't know unless I'm tested in this way. I'd like to think so, but then again, I know me pretty well and I don't know. And the truth is, in a similar way, those who trust in God through faith in Jesus Christ will experience deliverance. There's a parallel there. They believed in this God, they believed that they could be delivered, and the same principle truth applies to those who trust in God right now. If you trust in God through Jesus Christ, deliverance is yours. God may choose not to deliver you, a believer, from every fiery trial. But he does promise to walk through them with you. That's something we learned from the text last week. Okay, so because we believe in the promises of God, we know that God's a deliverer and, and these promises are essentially ours. All of the promises in Scripture belong to God's people, essentially. But that doesn't ensure that he'll deliver us from every particular moment. Some of these things that we go through are meant for our good and sanctification. In fact, I think all of them are. And so there are things that, that I have to go through in order to have a little bit more of Phil chipped away and a little bit more of Jesus revealed. So he doesn't deliver us because he will deliver us in, in totality. It doesn't mean that he will deliver us from every little thing that we go through, every illness and all of that. But make no mistake... God always, always, always delivers believers, always delivers his people from the penalty of sin, from death. What do you think the resurrection is for? It shows that we have, in Christ, we have victory over death. He always delivers believers from the penalty of sin, from death, from Satan, who is our total and absolute enemy, from hell, from the flames of hell. And he, he delivers us from many other things. In fact, some of those things we talked about, I believe, last week, will come when we either breathe our last breath and go to be with the Lord, or the Lord comes to be with us. There is a total deliverance that, 
that we have in Christ. And some of that is delayed and comes later. But make no mistake, right now, as a child of God, you may be going through a trial that these trials not to deliver you from, but it's meant for your good. But he has delivered you from the wage of sin and all of these horrific things, the worst things. There is a deliverance from those things. Deliverance is guaranteed for those who trust in God through Jesus Christ by grace through faith, period. There's no debate. There's nothing more uh, to, to, you know, you can try to figure out what that means and what it looks like, but don't go back and forth with, well, I don't know if I am. You won't be held guilty for your sin. You will rise as Christ rose. Total deliverance is coming. I mean, to me, that's so exciting because I don't know about you, but most days I don't feel all that great. Probably because of my diet. You know, I basically work out so I can eat like a slob. I'm the billboard that says, I work out so I can eat four cheese pizza. I used to laugh at that and mock it. What fools. I do it. I am just longing for total and absolute deliverance, aren't you? I can't wait for that day. I can't wait. It is ours. Nebuchadnezzar then illustrates the depth of their faith and commitment to God. Right? He kind of describes the depth of their faith, how far they were willing to go for their God, the depth of their faith. He says this of them, they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. What a statement. It is so clear that their commitment was so deep that these three men showed that obedience to their God, that's a deep faith, obedience to God and their commitment to God was greater. And, and, and their commitment to God's glory and being obedient to him, it was, just, it was greater. The commitment and faith was greater and deeper than their own desire for preservation. Their willingness and desire to please God with their lives and to bring him glory was deeper and broader than their desire for their own safety and well-being and their own lives. They willingly were going to sacrifice themselves for God's glory. I mean, to me, that's just, that's deep faith. You know, deep faith should not just be measured by how much we know. Well, I... You know, like R.C. Sproul, maybe he's got more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know, he, he knows the scripture inside and out. I look up to the guy. And, and some of us in this room are very scholarly and we study the word diligently and, you know, we can recite things and, you know, somebody asks you a question about a particular doctrine and you can unpack it for them, systematize it. You know, knowledge is a great thing. Knowing the word is a great thing, but, but the depth of faith is not to be measured only by what you know, but by what you do, by how you live it out. There's that great warning in the book of James, right, that says, let's just not be hearers. Let's just not make it a point to know the word of God. Let's live it out and do it. And so the depth of faith is, is revealed through what you know and through what you do. And their willingness to, to sacrifice, them, sacrifice themselves for God's honor and glory 
reveals that they had not just a knowledge, because they were believing in God's promises, so the knowledge is there, but that they had this willingness and desire to die for him. That Man, that's a deep, deep, deep commitment. And if you study church history, you will find that there haven't been that many saints who were willing to go as far as they went. Some of the Puritans, John Knox and others, were burned alive. (laughs) Just as these men were trying to do. This is extraordinary faith. This is extraordinary commitment. I'm not saying that there haven't been a lot of martyrs and a lot of Christians who have been willing to die for Jesus Christ. There are countless. But not all of them have said, go ahead and burn me. That's at a whole other level to me. You know, shoot me for Jesus, that's fine. Hang me for Jesus, behead me for Jesus. You know what, not really down with the burning alive thing. That's just a, there's a depth of faith and a a deep commitment represented here in the text. And in some ways we find ourselves in a similar situation today as lawmakers create a wide range of ungodly legislation as they pander and pander and pander to various groups. And why do they pander to these various groups who want these protections and entitlements? Because the legislators want power. The legislators want votes. Votes mean power. All of this legislation is being produced, and and some of it is just completely wicked and ungodly. And, and here we are, the citizens of the state, the citizens of this nation, and we're the ones that have to either comply with this legislation or, or turn away from it. You see, in our culture, the legislation and things that are happening and the, the turn away from morality and these things, I mean, we're going to be faced with the same sort of decision. You may never find yourself bound and hanging over a burning, fiery furnace. But in some ways, you will have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will be faced with a choice. I'm either going to comply with this wicked legislation, which to me is the same thing as bowing before a golden idol, or I'm going to err on the side of righteousness and be like these men and suffer well for Jesus or trust in God's promises. I know that at some point, our church will be faced with an opportunity like this. And some of you are saying, hey, it ain't coming. I've already had to deal with it. It's, Al Mohler says, it's inevitable. With the moral decline, it is inevitable that churches are going to be faced with having to make decisions, either for God or capitulate and fall in line with the status quo. There are certain people out there that just absolutely despise the church's doctrines, the church's view on sexuality, the church's view on gender, the church's view on marriage, and they will not rest until every body of believers, you and I, both large and small bodies, either fall in line with their agenda or vanish. There is such a storm coming I don't think that we can even fathom what's on the horizon. The question is, how will we, how will RHC 
respond when it's our time to face the music? Will we stick together? You got three friends here. They had that fellowship. And let me tell you, there's strength in numbers, even if it's only two or three. Will we stick together? Will we trust God and, and stand upon His promises? Will we, when we're, we're told you must bow, you must comply, we'll take your tax exemption, we'll shut you down, whatever the threat is, and that's been a threat for a long time now. Will we, as the threat comes, as we tote the line of scriptural authority in these things, will we remain standing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I'm not bowing. Or will we bow and fall in line? It's a great question. And I know we're all quick to say, well, I'm not bowing. I would be the type that would say, I'm not bowing. I'm just going to find a way to do it in the privacy of my own home. I'm not sure if I'm willing to make a public display of my, I'm not doing it. Because I know that it's going to come with consequences. I don't think we're as tough as we think we are. But I'm not trying to encourage you to bow. I'm just trying to be real. When I first got saved, I wouldn't bow to anything. I wouldn't even bow to Pulp Fiction the DVD. I threw it out. And I was like, no, that's it. I'm done. Done with the world. Fifteen years later or so, I'm like, well, that's a pretty serious threat. Honestly, I could care less about tax exemption. We have a small church. It's not going to impact us. I feel bad for big churches. And maybe someday it'll be the sword on the back of your neck. What will we do? I tell you what, if we continue to grow in the Scripture and in the promises of God, and if we stick together and we're prayerful people, I think we can make it through anything that the government throws at us. Anything. But we've got to stick together. But it's coming. It's coming. We might all find ourselves standing with the hole and the flames coming out. Oh, man. My prayer for us is that we would stick together and that we would love God more than our own lives. Love God more than comfort. (laughs) Is it really all that comfortable in this life? I mean, I just got done talking about how I eat four cheese pizzas so so I can run three miles every... (laughs) I'm not that comfortable. (laughs) I, I don't feel like... I'm fitted for this world. Do you? So we should be fine with saying, burn me. Let's look at the next text. Let's look at, uh, what is it, 29A. It's, It's so small, I can't even see it. I've got glasses on. Nebuchadnezzar says this, Therefore I make a decree. Any people nation, or language that speaks anything against the God, again, right, their God, not my God, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. This guy needs serious counseling. I mean, he just goes from one extreme to the other. Kill them all. Okay, don't, don't kill them all, but kill some. I mean, he's all over the place. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar told the Chaldeans, right, the chief astrologers, these were like his leading astrologers, 
if they failed to describe and interpret his mysterious dream, they would be what? Torn limb from limb and have their homes turned into dung heaps. That's what Leyden Ruins translates at. It's like having your house torn down and then having a bunch of animal poop stacked up on the ruins. It's like supposed to be the ultimate embarrassment. Because, you know, everyone would walk a mile to stay away from the stench of your old house. Chapter 2, we see the same thing. But here he issues a similar warning, right? Torn limb from limb. We see a similar warning here. But this time, the warning doesn't just go to the chief astrologers or to anyone who can't decipher and describe the dream. It goes out to his entire kingdom, to every ethnic group, right? Any people, he says, that's every ethnicity, every nationality, he says nation, and every tongue, everyone who speaks different languages because his kingdom was a collection of people groups from all of the surrounding nations that he had completely laid in ruins and turned into dung heaps. The warning is those who malign, right? Those who verbally slander or speak against those who malign how does he put it anyone who speaks anything against so the warning is anyone who maligns the god of shadrach meshach and abednego will be torn limb from limb and have their homes turned into poo-poo piles this is his reverse decree if you will and it is like an admission of defeat it's like he's saying i've been defeated The king had challenged the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he said, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Back in verse 15, right? Here he basically admits his defeat. I challenged your God. I got blown out. That's what he's saying, in effect. So there is an ounce of humility here. He admits his defeat by reversing his decree and generating a new decree that protects and preserves the name of this same God, the one in whom he challenged. Well, your God defeated me, and I'm not going to let anyone malign him. His reverse decree also indicates that Nebuchadnezzar had a newly found respect for their God, just as he'd done 20 years earlier. He had a, his respect for this same God was, was restored as it had been 20 years. There was a lot of drift in that 20-year period between the deciphering of his dream and, and the fiery furnace. So 20 years, you know, 20 years earlier, he was kind of, I respect your God, I'm praising him and all these sorts of things. He kind of forgets about that over the 20-year period. And here it's restored. He's got the respect again for their God. I think there's a little bit of fear here over this God's power. Like I said, his idol gods just sit there and go, They don't do anything. They're stone and wood and the moon, it sits up there and reflects sunlight. That's all it does. It doesn't do much more than that. Of course, there's the man in the moon and it's made of cheese. His respect was restored for their God in a sense. And I I think that what he did at this point was that obviously he wasn't willing to profess or confess Their God is his God. But I think what he was doing here was he was, because of this order to protect the name of their God, I think what he was doing was adding their God to his pantheon of gods. 
considering their God to be the most high God of all his gods. Because every time I see that in scripture, the most high God, I always think there's no other gods. How can he be the most high God? He's, he's the only God. Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he's the most high God, which means Nebuchadnezzar believed in other gods. And so their God, Yahweh, now becomes kind of the highest God in his pantheon. So he wants to become a worshiper of their God on his terms, but he's adding, in a sense, this God to his pantheon. Now look at 29b. This is my favorite verse, maybe in this chapter, easily in this section. This is something else that he says, right? He, he puts out the edict and he follows it up with this. Here's his rationale for why he's telling his entire kingdom, if you talk smack about their God, I will kill you. And this is the rationale for it. 29b, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There's no other God that can do what this God just did. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was off most of the time, right? But he was right on this one, wasn't he? He nailed this one, didn't he? There is no other God who is able to rescue people from a burning, fiery furnace. That is his testimony right here. I ain't never seen anything like this. I'm convinced that none of my gods can do this. This is why he's to be revered and to be respected. The king was driven to this conclusion by the fact that he had never seen any of his astral deities perform like this. He'd never seen anything like this. At this point, he was willing to testify to the superiority of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God and to admit his defeat in a sense. But he was still unwilling to forsake his idols and trust in Yahweh alone. We must understand that Nebuchadnezzar lived in a polytheistic society where people worshipped many gods, kind of like America. Oh, this is one nation under God. Well, certainly, but the view is many different gods here. This is a polytheistic, or polytheistic culture. This is a pluralistic culture that we live in. In America, it is a constitutional right to adhere to just about any religion, with the exception of Christianity, and to worship whatever God you want. This is the land of the free. Well, you can belong to any religion you want, provided that it doesn't, you know, maybe, I don't know, cause other people harm, emotional stress. You can worship whatever God you want here in America. As Christians, however, we do not believe in many gods, do we? We believe in one God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, is the only Savior of this world. And that He alone can rescue sinners like you and I from anything, especially from the flames of hell. We believe that Christianity is the only true religion and saving path to God. 
Now, the idea that Christ is the only Savior and Christianity is the only saving path to God is a hard sell in a pluralistic, you know, polytheistic culture that celebrates, absolutely exalts and celebrates religious diversity. Americans do not like exclusivity when it comes to religion. They don't. You would think that we do. We don't like exclusivity. If, if Americans want deliverance at all, they want it on their terms. Now, I think this is why there is a growing animosity against Christians in America today. People despise the fact that we tout Christ alone. They hate that. He can't be the only way. He can't be the only life and the only truth in these things. They feel that because we hold that position, which is quintessential to our faith, because we hold that position, we are intolerant toward anyone else who thinks differently. It's an intolerance. It's an insensitivity issue. The truth is, humanity, fallen humanity, prefers its idols, (laughs) prefers its golden statues over the one true God. All people, all people are like Nebuchadnezzar, even believers to a degree. Living solus Christus, Christ alone, is very, very difficult. Can I get an amen if you're a believer? Is that the easiest thing to pull off? No. It's not. It's not easy to live that Latin phrase, Solus Christus. It's not easy to be Christ alone. There's just so many distractions. Half the time we're battling our own mentality of good deeds are going to get me what I need from God. Half the time we're battling that self-God issue that we have to deal with. The thing that Adam and Eve wrestled with. Ye shall be as gods. We've been trying to be gods ever since they chose to try to be gods. We don't like exclusivity. We don't... Americans hate that. They want it on their terms, and we as believers so often want things on our terms. It is difficult to be solus Christus. But it's no less true. It's no less true. It really doesn't matter how we feel. It doesn't matter how well we do. It doesn't matter what people think or believe or what they want, what they desire, whatever their felt needs are. Christ alone is truth. And men are like grass. They wither and blow away. But the word of God endureth forever. Christ alone. Now I'm certainly glad that my periodic bouts with idolatry, because it's not every day anymore, but it's periodic. I wrestle with these things. I'm, I'm so glad and blessed to know that they are covered by the grace of the Lord. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that I don't, you know, oh, I don't have a problem with idolatry. Let me tell you something. I spent an hour in the mirror yesterday, manscaping, plucking little hairs. I'm like, where'd that come from? It was like a wire coming out of my ear. I could have hooked it up to 220. I sat there and sculpted my eyebrows because if I don't, they come together and they look like one giant caterpillar 
You know, I sat there and I was picking at stuff and, bzz, 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 you know, it sounded like, it sounded like somebody was working on a car, you know. It was a mild form of idolatry. Just trying to make myself look good. You know, I had to work. I had a, a wedding to be at. And when you get to be my age now, you feel like you're the oldest person at these weddings now. That stinks. Now, I haven't gone to hair color yet. My hairstylist says, you should just color your hair. And I'm like, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to color my hair. I, I don't want to be, you know... I'm 50% prima donna. I don't want to go over the edge here. The greatest idol in Pastor Phil's life is Pastor Phil. (laughs) I'm meticulous about things and making sure that I'm always comfortable. You know, I, I wrestle with idolatry all the time. And I'm just so glad that the grace of the Lord just covers those failures and sins. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit helps me to recognize when I go off into those things. And that he, he gives me the power to overcome them. Am I speaking to you? You feel the same way? Now, I'm not going to represent anyone else here. I just know that I'm the biggest idol here. I'm the golden statue. I try to bow to myself. It's kind of hard, but... Now, I want to spend a little time equipping you so that you can better communicate and defend the exclusivity of Christ. This is hugely important. It's basically the gospel rests on this. I just want to give you five reasons from Scripture why Christ is the only Savior. Just consider this a little bit of training for apologetics so you can maybe lovingly argue for why Christ is it. Because if you are a faithful witness at all, even if you just share in conversation with people, you know you're gonna, there's going to be so many objections to that. Like I said, it's an intolerance issue. People can't stand it. They don't like exclusivity. First, Christ alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. He's the only person in history to have done something like this. No one else. Isaiah 7, 14, written long before Christ came. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Speaking of God, here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, which translates God with us. Matthew 1, 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's how it went down, Matthew says. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, okay, uh, that's like, getting ready to get married to, Joseph, before they came together, okay, before there was any kind of sexual relationship with them, before they were married, before they consummated their marriage through the the oneness of the flesh, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Why does this matter? Only as the Holy Spirit takes the place of the human father in Christ's conception can it be true that one conceived is both fully God and fully man. Christ must be both God and man to atone for sin. But for this to occur, he must be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a human virgin. 
No one else in the history of the world is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin mother. No one. It is true that we are born of the Spirit in a, in a spiritual sense. That's the new birth, but it's vastly different from what happened with Christ here. No one fits that profile except Christ alone. Secondly, Christ alone is God incarnate. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul is exhorting the believers in Philippi. Have this mind. Okay, take on this mentality, this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, (laughs) did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, him, actually Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, listen to this, for by him all things were created, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. (laughs) Wow, what a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. As Anselm argued in the 11th century, our Savior must be fully man in order to take the place of men and die in their steed, and he must be fully God in order for the value of his sacrificial payment to satisfy the demands of our infinitely holy God. Man, he must be, but a mere man simply could not make this infinite payment for our sin. But no one else in the history of the world is both fully God and fully man. Therefore, Christ alone qualifies to be Savior. So he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. That sets him apart from all others. He... uh, Alone is God incarnate, the God-man, fully God, fully man. That sets him completely apart from all others. Number three, Christ alone lived a sinless life. And if you know anything about yourself, you know this is extraordinarily true because there's no way you've ever lived a sinless life. I can't go 15 minutes without sinning. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. <laughs> First Peter 2.2, 2, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. As Leviticus makes clear, animals offered as sacrifices for sin must be without blemish. This prefigured the sacrifice of Christ, who, as sinless, was able to die for the sins of others and not for himself. You see, when he died, he didn't die for his sins because he didn't have sins. He died for our sins because we have sins. But no one else in the history of the world has lived a totally sinless life. No one, no one has ever walked in flesh without sin except for Christ alone, which qualifies him to be Savior. For Christ alone died a penal, under penalty, substitutionary death. Isaiah 53, 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. And because Christ lived a sinless life, he did not deserve to die. Rather, the cause of his death was owing to the fact that the Father imputed our sin to him. Our sin became on, it was placed upon his body. The death he died, he was a substitute, right, was in our place. It was us that should have been on that cross, dying for our sins. But he takes our sin upon him and dies for us and pays the penal price. He is the substitute. No one else in the history of the world has died because he bore the sin of others. (laughs) no one no one's ever died for someone else's sins while they remain sinless no one has ever done that no one can ever do that christ did it he didn't die because god's judgment for his sins was on him he died because god's judgment for our sins was upon his body no one's ever done anything like that before five Christ alone rose from the dead, triumphant over sin. We always say that he rose from the grave, triumphant over death. It is true, but he also triumphed over sin through his resurrection. Acts 2.22 through 24, men of Israel, this is Peter preaching, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yet God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that text. Romans 4.24, it will be counted to us who believe in God, who raised from the dead... Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, the Bible indicates that a few people other than Christ have been raised from the dead, 1 Kings 17, 17, John eleven thirty eight. 38. But only Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again, having triumphed over sin. The wages of sin is death. That means when you sin, the payment for that is death. We all die because we are sinners. And the greatest power of sin is death. So Christ's resurrection from the dead demonstrates that his atoning death for sin accomplished both the full payment of sin's penalty and the full victory over sin's greatest power, which is death. No one else in the history of the world has been raised from the dead, triumphant over sin, and over the result of sin, death. No one. Only Christ. Therefore, Christ alone qualifies to be Savior. The bottom line, Christ alone qualifies as Savior, and Christ alone is Savior. His own words could not be clearer. He said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. The Apostle Peter confirms. He wrote, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. These claims are true of no one else in the history of the world. Christ alone is Savior. Remember that. That's just one way to be equipped. You can go out and talk about his virgin birth. You can talk about his sinlessness. You can talk about his resurrection. You can talk about his substitutionary penal death. You can talk about those things. Well, you know, I know that you believe in this and many gods and all, but let me tell you what Jesus has done, unlike anyone else in the history of the world. You can not just claim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, you can show them why he's exclusive. How is a sinner saved by Christ, the Savior? By grace, through faith, not by our works, not by our deeds. But believing in Christ as Savior includes turning away from self-sufficiency, idols, and sin. It doesn't mean you become perfect, but it means from that moment on, you live a life of fighting those things. Now let's look at 30 and wrap it up. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. (laughs) Chapter 3 is spot on like chapter 2. It's so much like it. They both begin with death sentences. You're not going to kill everyone. And they both end with promotions. It's the flip-floppy nature of Nebuchadnezzar, quite frankly, my flip-floppy nature, right? Here and there, here and there. I mean, they both start with these death sentences, and then they, they end with promotions. Now, we don't know what promotions these men received, but we do know, it says in the text, that they remained in the province of Babylon. That's the capital province of the kingdom. They remained in the capital province under the leadership of their good friend Daniel, because he was the satrap, kind of the governor head of that particular province. So the promotions had to do with staying in that same province. They weren't transferred out. They stayed under Daniel, but they were promoted up from maybe counselor position to something higher. Who knows? As I was wrapping up this message, I began to wonder what became of the king's golden image. (laughs) I mean, it was basically useless from this point on, right? I mean, he had been defeated by the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The golden image would now serve as a reminder of this defeat. Every time you looked at it, remember when those guys didn't bow down to it? Remember how they didn't die? You're a putz, right? And what do you think happened with this thing? I wonder, did he leave it up? Did he tear it down? What did he do? It would be a reminder of, yeah, his power in a sense, but also his defeat. Those guys wouldn't bow to it. The king was defeated. Did he leave it standing on the plain of Dura? For the rest of his reign? Or did he tear it down? We don't know. I have a theory. I think he left it in place for the time being. At this point in the historical narrative, he has not yet hit rock bottom and changed his ways. Now, he's still into himself. We're going to look at chapter 4, how he's completely brought to ruin. So he's still in a process here, but I don't think he tore it down right now. I don't think he took it down. If the golden image did remain standing throughout his reign, you can be sure that the Medo-Persians tore it down, kept the gold for themselves when they invaded shortly after he passed away. We don't know what happened with it. I'm thinking that he promoted these guys to sort of ease his conscience. 
I'm going to leave the statue up, but I'm going to promote these guys who represent that God. It's funny how we do that, how we think that some kind of good little deed or something that we do will somehow satisfy our holy God. I think he left it up. I don't know. In any case, that takes care of chapter 3.